Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Today is International Pronoun Day, so here are some historical facts about pronouns. Scientists have discovered a previously unknown organ in the human body. And forget about WeWork, a Japanese amusement park has offered up their Ferris wheel as a co-working space. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So today, the third Wednesday in October, is International Pronouns Day, which I only know about because my roommate had to attend a diversity and inclusion Zoom call about pronouns for work this morning. International Pronouns Day only began in 2018, but is already being celebrated in 25 countries and is defined on the website as a day which, quote, seeks to make respecting, sharing, and educating about personal pronouns commonplace, end quote. And when we talk about pronouns in this context, we mean words like he, she, or they, ones that we use to refer to each other when we're not using someone's name. Sometimes which pronoun you should use for someone isn't obvious. Sometimes someone might even use a gender-neutral pronoun like they or z that you might not be familiar with. And while mainstream awareness, and in some cases corporate recognition, of gender-neutral pronouns has grown in recent years, they're actually not as new as they might seem. The Oxford English Dictionary notes that the use of a singular they can be found as early as 1375. And while it fell out of favor in the 18th century, that was not long after the plural you stopped being used. You know all those these and thous that were used in the Elizabethan era and before? That was the singular informal version of you, while you was the plural or formal version. If you were referring to multiple people or someone of a higher rank than yourself— not dissimilar to some Romance languages like French, where to is singular and informal, while vous is either plural or formal. And when people started dropping thou and just using you, it was met with similar resistance to the singular they is today. Quoting the Oxford English Dictionary, In 1660, George Fox, the founder of Quakerism, wrote a whole book labeling anyone who used singular you an idiot or a fool. And 18th century grammarians like Robert Louth and Lindley Murray regularly tested students on thou as singular, you as plural, despite the fact that students used singular you when their teachers weren't looking, and teachers used singular you when their students weren't looking, end quote. A more recent example of identifiers changing would be the adoption in the 1970s of Ms, that is M-S period, instead of Miss or Mrs., and that's actually pretty relevant here, because even though the singular they is overwhelmingly associated with transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming individuals and rights at the moment, it first started coming back into English usage as a feminist statement. Quoting again, In 1794, a contributor to the New Bedford medley mansplains to three women that the singular they they used in an earlier essay in the newspaper was grammatically incorrect and does no honor to themselves or the female sex in general, to which they honorably reply that they used the singular they on purpose because we wished to conceal the gender, and they challenge their critic to invent a new pronoun if their politically charged use of singular they upsets him so much. End quote. 
Throughout the 19th and early 20th century, there were a lot of attempts to conceal the gender of pronouns and fight back against language that was often dominated by he, him, his, and man. By doing things like writing she with the S in parentheses or with a slash between the S and the H, the pronoun Z, Z-E, and its conjugated form here, H-I-R, first came to use in the early 1900s, not the early 2010s. And indeed, according to a 2019 study in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the use of gender-neutral pronouns reduces bias in favor of men and boosts positive feelings towards women and or LGBTQ people. And that's kind of what this day is about, raising awareness of how to treat everyone with dignity, regardless of their gender or which pronoun they use. When the sharing of pronouns is normalized in settings like the workplace, it takes the onus off of the person or few people whose pronoun may be different than what most people assume it is, or whose pronoun may be one like they or z that not everyone is familiar with. And plus it provides everyone with a chance to learn about pronouns, normalizing that behavior even more going forward. To give you another angle on why using the pronoun someone asserts for themselves matters, I want to share an excerpt from a new article by writer and political analyst Anand Giridardis about having a name that many Americans struggle to pronounce. Quote, Today, there is a language for the behaviors many of us experienced before such frameworks existed. We might call them microaggressions. Back in school, I just knew them as the tax of not being John or Michael or Bob or William or Brian. And I say tax deliberately. A mis- and dispronounced name is not necessarily a gate that locks you out, though it can be. It's a tax you must pay several times a day, every day, simply to keep moving through life. Before virtually every encounter you have, there is this phase that other people get to skip. A phase in which everyone is reminded that you are not entirely of us. You do not belong to our default. You need to be explained. You come with instructions. You are a hard case. You take extra effort. You don't just glide into the mix. You require extra preparation by us. You may get offended at us. The tax is paid in various currencies. Sometimes you say nothing, and in that case, the tax is within. The slow grading of misrecognition, of accepting as yourself something that is not you, but must be tolerated as though you. Sometimes you correct or even protest, and in that case, the tax is social. You're now making a fuss, expending precious middle school social capital, being a stickler, not chill at all, for something as seemingly trivial as the emphasis on a syllable. Sometimes the people doing the mispronouncing hear themselves failing to say what they have heard you say and, without needing to be corrected, apologize for their limitations of tongue. And here, too, there is a tax, and a rather strange one. The need you feel in that situation to make them feel okay about having said your name wrong. The need to restore their sense of goodness which trumps any need to get your name said right. The need to make and keep the already centered comfortable. On those occasions, on the surface, they may be apologizing to you, but the subtext is you apologizing to them for existing in a way that makes them have to apologize. End quote. And so, if you want to help other people not feel that tax, you can go to the pronouns.org link in the show notes for more resources, but I'll also leave you with these quick parting tips for if you don't know someone's pronouns. Let's say you've met someone new and you can't wait for a meeting or some gathering where everyone is going to share their pronouns. 
The first step these days is that a lot of people state their pronouns in their email signature or in their bio on social media. And now in our era of video calling, many platforms allow you to edit your display name and you can include your pronouns alongside it there. So check those places first. But if you don't find their pronouns in any of those places, try asking someone who knows them or listening to how others refer to them in conversation. Of course, that one's a bit risky in case other people are getting it wrong. And if all of that fails, you can ask the person. But do it respectfully and ideally one-on-one, out of the way, so it's not a big deal that puts them in the spotlight. And a great way to do this is by introducing your own pronouns first. You can say, hey, I'm Jack and I use he, him pronouns, what about you? Or, by the way, I use he, him pronouns, which do you use? It may seem like a lot of work, but it's not so different from other things that we do out of common courtesy. You know, how many times have you had to go searching for someone's last name when you aren't sure if they changed it after a marriage or a divorce? How often do you find out you're mispronouncing someone's name or not using the nickname that they prefer? Sometimes it does take work to be courteous and respectful. And maybe it's just my southern upbringing, but I think that token of hospitality is always worth it. It's not every day that we discover a new part of the human body, but today is one of those days. A team of Dutch researchers have discovered a pair of salivary glands tucked away near where the nasal cavity meets the throat. This would mark the fourth set of major salivary glands, with previous knowledge indicating there were only three, one near the ears, one by the jaw, and one under the tongue. The study, published last month in the journal Radiotherapy and Oncology, was sparked by a discovery made by doctors examining prostate cancer patients using a new advanced scan called a PSMA PET-CT. It's meant to highlight tumors in the body when paired with injections of radioactive glucose. But in addition to tumors, it also highlighted the previously unknown salivary glands. Quoting the New York Times, Puzzled by the images, they dissected tissue from two cadavers and found that the glands bore similarities to known salivary glands that sit below the tongue. The new glands were also hooked up to large draining ducts, a hint that they were funneling fluid from one place to another. It's not completely clear how the glands eluded anatomists, but the location is not very accessible, and you need very sensitive imaging to detect it, said Dr. Ruder Vogel, a radiation oncologist at the Netherlands Cancer Institute and an author on the study. The body's other large salivary glands, which sit closer to the surface of the skin, can also be poked and prodded. That's far less feasible with these fourth pair of structures, which are tucked under the base of the skull, end quote. Salivary glands are very delicate, especially when it comes to interference from radiation therapy. Doctors usually take every precaution to avoid salivary glands because one zap from the radiation can permanently damage them. Despite their best efforts, however, many patients often end up with chronic dry mouth or swallowing problems after undergoing radiation therapy for cancers of the head or neck. And this discovery could explain that phenomenon in part, as doctors would have been missing one of the sets of glands they would have been looking out for. There needs to be a lot more data added, however. The sample set of patients in this study was very small, only 723 individuals, and consisted entirely of people with prostate or urethral gland cancer, and only one woman. Also, as Dr. Alvin Hassankani, a radiologist at the University of Pennsylvania, pointed out, there are over a thousand minor salivary glands, and it's possible this new one isn't so new at all, but rather one of those minor ones being viewed in better light than ever before. 
Science Alert does counter, however, that minor salivary glands are typically microscopic, and this new potential set is quite a bit larger. As more data comes out, it's something to keep an eye on, because such large salivary glands, whether major or minor, could change the way disease there is treated. And as Dr. Yvonne Mowry, a radiation oncologist at Duke University, said, it's, quote, quite shocking that we are in 2020 and have a new structure identified in the human body, end quote. If you're getting bored of working from home and wanting a change of scenery, maybe your town will soon take a leaf out of Yomiuri Land's book and start offering some more creative outdoor workspace options. Yomiuri Land, an amusement park in the suburbs of Tokyo, has just introduced their amusement workation package. Setting aside the fact that the word workation sounds like the nightmare end goal of the gig economy, what it means to Yomiuri Land is a couple of places in their park that they've equipped with Wi-Fi and set up for safe outdoor working. There's a poolside location that features a work booth with table and chairs, but also a Ferris wheel office. Just for the equivalent of $18, you can spend an hour working from the Wi-Fi-equipped Yomiuri Land Ferris wheel, admiring all the sights of the park that you'll have access to once you're done crunching numbers or coming up with a pithy brand-safe tweet or whatever it is you do for work. Sadly, Japan is not open for international tourism at the moment, so unless you're listening from near Tokyo, you'll have to settle for petitioning your local amusement park to adopt the same offering. Or you could try building a Ferris wheel in your backyard. Building backyard roller coasters did seem to be the science dad equivalent of making sourdough bread for a hot minute there earlier in lockdown. But with that, the gauntlet for most outrageous COVID-safe not-at-home workspace has officially been thrown. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go call up Medieval Times and see what kind of co-working spaces they offer. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.